Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Jennifer Johnson has been a PTA leader on local and state levels within Michigan for years, most recently as Vice President for Student Involvement and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Chairperson, both at the state level. She is also her local school's PTA president. With a decade of experience advocating for children and families in areas of equity and education, Jennifer recently earned a certification in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University. She also serves on the Board of Affirmations, an LGBTQ community center in Ferndale, Michigan, and she spearheads diversity efforts for the American Foundation on Suicide Prevention's Michigan chapter. Jennifer Johnson, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so honored to speak with you. And, you know, we were talking before the episode about how we had met years ago uh, when I was a parent at Norup International School and was involved for a few years with the PTA, that I admitted that I stalk you online because you're so amazing. And I'm like, I bet she doesn't remember me, but I just love all the oh, work that you're doing. <laughs> I don't remember you from stalking. I remember you from being an, an involved parent, which is what schools really need. And that's, I mean, it was it was really you know helpful for me to see involved parents like yourself to help me with my mission and being involved with children. Well, thank you. I mean, it, for me, it was just natural. I wanted to be where my kids were and to, you know, have a, a voice and a say and, and help in the schools where they are. And as my kids are older now, I have um, three high school students and a college student. Yes. And it's like, they're kind of at the ages where they, they don't really want you to volunteer. They want you mm-hmm. around, but like on their terms. And yes. um, so I'm sort of walking that line because I I want to respect their wishes, but I also feel like yes. being a parent advocate is super important and it is important for them too, you know? It's very important. It's, and I'm towing that line also because I have, I don't know if you can believe it, but my daughter now is 15 years old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 15, and I have a nine-year-old son. And oh. so it's that, that balance is interesting because your teenager, a lot of times they don't want you around, but sometimes they do. I mean, during this pandemic, um, my daughter was like, she just didn't want my husband and I around. And then she would just come up and just give us a hug and say, mom, how are you? And I'm like, okay. And so it's kind of like an ebb and flow thing. I love that. Well, you know, it's funny because I find that my kids, they want they want me around and they want to know that I'm listening and paying attention, but mm-hmm. they also want their freedom. And so yes. um, in the beginning of the pandemic, my daughter, who is almost 17, she and I would just take walks every night and she did all the talking. And I just listened because I was like soaking it in. I'm like, great. You want to talk to me? And, um, and she, you know, it was, it was wonderful, but I've learned that when they want you, you drop everything and you give them that full attention. (laughs) And that's the whole thing. So I'm like, why am I even here? Because that's what it is. It's like when kids want to talk, you drop everything and you give them your full attention, no matter how busy you are. And we're all, we have to admit, we're all very busy right now, but we have to stop because our kids are really watching us now. It's like our kids are watching us. Other kids are watching us, whether they're ours or not. And so it just makes it imperative that we listen 
to them and hear their voice and know what they want instead of us always saying, this is what the kids want. We need to ask them, what is it that they want? What is it that they need? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So I want to ask you a little bit about your work because I'm so fascinated and I want want you to share with our listeners, you know, how you came to this diversity, equity, and inclusion work and, and, you know, just sort of your vision. But let's just start with, you know, you describe yourself as a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, and you say you feel called to do this work. So I'd love to hear how this began and what inspired your passion for this work. I think it began when I was, um, oh my goodness, in my 20s when I did some substitute um, work as um, in Ann Arbor schools. And all I was doing was just, you know, being a substitute. And there was a little boy and um, he was very quiet and his parents were talking to us during an IEP meeting and they were talking like he wasn't there. And mm-hmm. I'm sitting there, I didn't have my degree yet. I'm just sitting there looking. And I said, I have a question. And they said, yes, they said, um, can he hear? And they said, yes. And I said, well, why are we talking like he's not here? Now, mind you, I was not married. I didn't have any <laughs> children, but I felt that this little boy needed some assistance, that he needed someone to advocate for him. And what blew my mind is like, as I look back now, the young man was, he was autistic and he was Mm. nonverbal and he was the light of my life. And I think about him all of the time and the work that I do. And so that's where the coming about advocating for children came about. But as far as the diversity and equity piece, what that is, he needed someone to speak up for him and his parents it's not that they weren't speaking up for him. They weren't sure how. All they were hearing was the negativity of what this young man, he would never, never be able to do that. And I said, well, let's try something. And so by the end of that year, he was able to write his name. It was all over the paper, but I did not care. And I was so excited. I didn't know what to do. That's so, amazing. That is so great. So that's what really drew me in there. It's like, everything with kids, it just keeps bringing me back in. It's like, I'm always advocating for them because I know as a child, um, I, my parents listened to me. I'm one of the, you know, we're amongst that generation of children post civil rights who um, we were um, fully integrated in schools mm-hmm. as far as we had different races, religions, and what have you in these classrooms. And so we were kind of like led into this purpose. If you look into our, I guess, our generation area, we're led to be you know, have this purpose-driven life of doing something that's good for society. And that's what's driven me to this. And I guess I was just basically born into it and didn't realize it until I was in my 20s. Wow, that's awesome. I feel like um, I do this show as much for myself to determine my calling as well as to help other people, because I do believe that we're all here for a reason and that each person has their unique gifts and talents to contribute to the world and make it better, make a difference in the society around them. And sometimes we don't know what that purpose is. And so, you know, I think these conversations help people to stumble upon, you know, what's calling them, what's at the core and, you know, put those passions to work. Definitely. Like you have. It absolutely does. I mean, when I look and I think about the late John Lewis, who um, I always looked up to from time I was, I can never remember. I would just listen to him. And what I was impressed by was that he was so young when he started. And as I became older, I said, oh, he's getting older also. But at the same time, he never changed his vision. He never changed his purpose. It was always equity and equality for everyone. And I said, at one time, people didn't really listen to him. But then he went out and he did what he called good trouble. (laughs) And so, so I love that analogy because when I talk to students today, I sit there and I'm like, 
okay, I'm not saying for you guys to go out there and do something, you know, that's, you know, going to be harmful for you. But I'm like, ask questions, ask questions of your teachers, ask questions of your parents. Matter of fact, ask questions of yourself. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, why are you, do, what are you, what do you believe in? And what is it that you're going to use with it? What are you going to use with this, that you're, whatever your belief is? Mm-hmm powerful and these are questions we have to ask early in life and continue asking them I think throughout life just so that we can keep on the path and make sure that we're that that's in focus you know absolutely absolutely so you know it's interesting I I don't know if you feel this way but I feel like the words diversity inclusion and equity have become buzzwords you know many people use them many schools particular Mm -hmm. um, profess a commitment to DEI work and yet we still see so much disparity on the basis of, you know, socioeconomic, racial, religious, mm-hmm. other details. So help me understand the difference between these terms and what we are really working toward. This is an excellent question because a lot of times the words diversity, inclusion, and equity, and equality also are used interchangeably, but they're very they're very different, but at the same time, they they do have similarities. Um, when we speak about diversity, a lot of times people think it only has to do with um, race relations and ethnicity. I'm like, it goes beyond that. Yes, it is race. Yes, mm-hmm. it is ethnicity, but it's also gender identity, religious and political ideology, physical characteristics of um, of others of yourself, and you know, disability rights and what have you. It, it encompasses so many things beyond the color of one's skin. It encompasses gender rights. Mm -hmm. And when we think about inclusion, that's basically the space that exists where um, like an individual or group feels supported and feels respected, feeling of like, okay, I belong here. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you, you don't want to be the person who's just like the token, whatever it is that you sure. are, whether it's the token, you know, whether it's your gender or your ethnicity or your orientation. Mm-hmm. That's not what inclusion is. Inclusion is feeling like you're, even if you're that only person there, that you feel included, you feel belong, like you have the psychological safety that you can speak to someone about your concerns, about your perspectives, and not feel like you're going to be attacked. Right. And psychological safety is so important now because these are buzzwords as far as diversity and inclusion. And then yeah. the equity is how fair we are with it. It's hmm. like when we look at school districts, for instance, and I'm always looking at school districts, you have school district A who their, their students receive $8,000 per student. School district B receives $8,000 per student also. So that's equal. That's yeah. equality. That's equal. However, the equity comes in part in place because if school A has a load of resources of which their, their students can use where that 8000 is kind of like not... It's, it's needed, but the resources that they have are really there. But then when you look at school B, they need every piece of that 8,000 and then some. And on top of it, they don't have resources available for their students. So although you have the equality there, the mm-hmm. equity is not present. And so that's where the challenge comes. That's interesting because um, I feel like what I'm hearing you say is that we need to start from the same beginning point. And so, yes. so many schools are not there. Some might yes. have beautiful new buildings and, mm-hmm. you know, HVAC systems that allow them to have the air circulating in a time like this yes. and oh, um, books for everybody. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm just going to mention um, something for you to check out. And I'd love to hear back from you if you do listen sure. to it, but there's a, a podcast called Serial and they did a five episode um, program called Nice White Parents, and they focused on yes. a school 
in Brooklyn and Mm -hmm. over the course of 60 years and they, you know, just different attempts to integrate and Mm -hmm. what finally ended up happening. And it was just interesting Mm -hmm. because I think equity was really the focus of that story is that ultimately there wasn't equity. And so parents were advocating for it. But so many times over the decades, it was only when the white parents spoke up that anything happened. And, exactly. um, and, it, and, and it happened to benefit their children as opposed to yes. all children. And so yes. it was like infuriating to listen to, but also really mm-hmm. interesting to understand and pick mm-hmm. apart, how did we get here? You know, that just yes. to look at this history, you know? And it was very difficult. Like, I didn't listen to the entire podcast. I listened to the first one. Mm-hmm. And it was it was difficult to listen to. Um, It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It was very difficult to listen to because you either, I was like, I identified with quite a bit of it. I'm sitting here and it was near cringeworthy. It was um, because one of my fellow um, PTA board members, Michigan PTA board members was um, sharing me like, oh my gosh, that morning. She said, you need to listen to this. It's eight o'clock in the morning. She said, you need to listen to this. Our meeting is at 930. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> so I listened to it and I said, oh my gosh. And so I got on Zoom and I'm sitting there and she just started laughing because she could see the expression on my face. It's like, what was that? <laughs> but wow. it was very, it was, I love that podcast. It was, um, it really hit, hit it on the nail about, about our association. Yeah. I mean, it was horrifying for me as a white woman because you know, so many times I feel like, especially now, we're really understanding the privilege that we were just born with, that we didn't even yes. do anything to deserve. And sure. then to hear that white parents get a response from school districts that mm. parents of color don't, it just made me yes. so angry. You know, it just, anyway, we won't go down there. But yeah, no, we're, <laughs> we're going to let, and, and for the school's credit, a lot, sometimes people don't realize that that's what they're doing or what's taking place. Yes, there are some instances where they are aware, but we have to be honest. There are some instances where they're not aware, and that's where the bias comes in, where the unconscious bias, unconscious bias, but we will leave that somewhere else. So let's move on. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, actually, I did want to ask you about the phrase mm-hmm. interrupting bias because you talked yes. about that. And so I'd love to understand what that means and how we do it. So tell me more. Oh, interrupting bias is one of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> I know that when someone hears that, they're like, okay, you're just wanting to just go out and tell people what they're doing wrong, what they're doing wrong. No, I start with myself first. Mm-hmm. I sit there, I'm like, okay, what bias do I have? And I'm conscious, not so much conscious, I try to be aware of it every time. I'll sit there, even with my own children, it's a bias with them where I'll sit there and say, okay, I bet he's not going to do blah, blah, blah. And Oh, okay. You surprised me today. (laughs) It's little things like that, that, you know, just making sure that we're, that before we hand those, you know, your fingers out at other people that we look at ourselves and say, okay, let's make sure that we have, you know, that we're interrupting it with our, in ourselves. Or if, you know, we do see it in someone else to try to become relatable to that person, say, you know, say, you know, I'm trying to want to share this with you that this, you know, hurt me. This, you know, this was, um, I was not happy with what you said with that and just let someone know. And I said, but in relation to that, I interrupt things within myself and you just kind of put yourself in that place where they feel comfortable to speak out. But where the challenge comes with interrupting bias is when you try to do so and then you have the microaggressions come in, sometimes that microaggression of invalidation where someone says to you, well, 
you can't feel that way because that's not what I meant. And I'm like, I understand that's not what you meant, but that's what came out. And so that's when it goes into intent. Um, So much with interrupting bias comes about where you're, I tell people, I said, you know, there might be a word that just really infuriates you or Mm -hmm. a situation infuriates you. I'll tell people, I said, take a moment, take a breath, just for a couple moments and then say, okay, and then approach it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And then approach it. Well, I think everyone can benefit in so many situations from taking a breath and just thinking yes. things through. Um, yes. We're always better off for that. Whenever I respond quickly, I'm like, oh, wait, I should have taken some time, <laughs> you know? Oh so, That's totally my continual true. thing for myself. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. So, you know, back to the whole education thing. I, I work in my marketing and PR company with a lot of private schools that are pretty homogenous um, in their mm-hmm. student populations. And, you know, I understand that when you are talking about private school where there's a tuition component, already the mm-hmm. equity is not there because not everybody has access to a school they need to pay for. And so um, you're going to end up with homogeneity with socioeconomic yes. or um, often racially and, you know, in some cases, religion. Um, Mm -hmm. Unless there's a really aggressive and generous, you know, accessible tuition program or something like Mm -hmm. that. And, and even then you may still not have the diversity. You you might, but you might not. Um, But I know that a lot of the schools, you know, their their administrators yearn to expand their populations Mm -hmm. to be more truly diverse. Like it's part of the beliefs and principles of Mm -hmm. the pedagogy and of the leaders. And yet just by being private schools, I think they have an uphill battle. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about what needs to happen for all schools to exhibit equity and inclusion. And, you know, not just, not just private. I mean, I think, you know, we're looking at school districts that some are better funded than others, but, you know, what, what needs to happen to really get there? That's a great question. I know that um, I had the fortunate or <laughs> upbringing. I went to um, private schools and public schools. Hmm. Um, I taught in private schools and public schools. And the interesting thing for me, and this will probably just make everyone laugh, when I was in a private school, it was very, very small. I went to um, St. Benedict in Highland Park. It's not there anymore. And I loved my school. But it was <laughs> Like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I don't feel like going to school. But when you get older, you're like, oh, my gosh, I wish I can go back there. And so I really enjoyed it there. But at at the school that I, when I attended there, um, the staff worked very hard. And now this was in the 70s. They worked very hard to make sure everyone felt included. We didn't really see that because we all had on, first of all, we had on the same uniform. So we couldn't get, (laughs) you know, we couldn't get past that. So that's what. Right, exactly. It's like we had to pay attention to, you know, the uniform. But when I went to public school, because the reason why I went from a private school to a public school, my private school, just like now, they close. And a lot of times they don't have the funding to stay open. And so oh. my school closed two weeks before school began. And oh. so I wound up going to a public school and it scared me half to death when Ooh. I went in there. Why? And why? There were so many people. I went from a school that had only maybe 200 people to where there was 200 people in the 10th grade alone. Oh, wow, that's a huge difference. Oh, wow. It was a huge difference. And it was, and then it was very homogenous. I went from a very blended type of education to a very homogenous education okay. um, type of, um, you know, um, a population group. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, quite a, a bit of a challenge. But one thing I can say about when I went there, the, the, um, the teaching staff was very diverse and they brought so many resources to us as students. They would sit there and look at the textbook and say, okay, we're going to use this, but however, this is going to be a resource. I always tell students, when a teacher tells you 
I want you to pay attention to this. If they bring in a piece of paper or some kind of article, I said, pay attention to it because that's what's not in the book. And mm-hmm. this is what you are really going to need. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really um, look at when I look at the differences between well, the similarities for education. You see that in private and public schools. Mm-hmm. For private schools, um, one thing that we do see a lot of um, homogenous um, populations, whether by ethnicity or socioeconomic factors in our private schools. However, the diversity comes in place because not everybody thinks the same. Right. And so you have that, they have different perspectives. And yeah. so that's what makes it a wonderful thing for any place because no one person thinks exactly the same. They might have similar type of viewpoints, yeah. but they're complete perspectives. And that's where that's where the um, equity piece comes in because that's what makes a beautiful thing about the brain is that you can have different perspectives and everyone can appear to look the same. Mm-hmm. They can appear to look all one type of person, mm-hmm. but they're not. And you can still get your, your agenda going. Interesting. I mean, I love that. And, you know, that really brings up an important point because in America, we spend so much time focusing on the external factors when we talk about diversity. And yes. you're absolutely right that, you know, the internal, the intellectual factors that mm-hmm. that make up the true diversity, I don't mm-hmm. think we focus on as much. You know, there are there are societies where people dress more modestly because they want the person to shine as opposed yes. to the external. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's some beauty in that concept too. And so yes. maybe that's something we can strive toward. <laughs> exactly. It's a, and it's a constant struggle trying to strive for that. <laughs> I know it really is. So um, I, I keep referencing podcasts, but um, hear me out. I just listened to a podcast called what it takes. And there was an yes. episode about John Hume and David Trimble who were leaders in Northern Ireland, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1998 for their uh, work toward peace in Northern Ireland together. So John Hume just died last month, and Mm -hmm. um, they aired pre-recordings from earlier in their lives. And they Mm -hmm. said some really interesting things, including these two ideas. So one was that education is the primary key to unity and equity in any society. And they really sort of drew that from examples in Northern Ireland of a lot of families that didn't have access to education. And so they couldn't change things, even if they were the majority of society. So it was really interesting that John Hume in particular was saying he grew up in a very poor family and there were seven Mm -hmm. kids and there was a lot of unemployment, but he was able to access education and go on to university. And then he was able to affect change and really bring peace, which was pretty cool. So, you know, that power of education. Mm -hmm. And then he also said, that um, peace and democracy depend on all people coming together as one. He was quoting Mm -hmm. E Pluribus Unum out of many one. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about where we are right now as Americans and how we might achieve these two important goals, because I feel like we're not out of many one, (laughs) you know, like maybe we want to be, but we're so fractured at this time. And yes, education is the key differentiator Mm -hmm. that gives people opportunity Um, you know, to really be who they're meant to be, but not everybody has the same access to an equitable education. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were about, you know, these two really interesting points. It's, it's very true. And it's, there is a lot of um, variation about equity in education um, from the time the child is in preschool coming, even before they can enter preschool. There's some students or families who can um, afford to put their child in the top notch preschool. And then there's some families who, can't afford to even put them in a free 
preschool. Now you probably ask, what do you mean that a family can't afford to put them in a free um, preschool? Uh-huh. That preschool might be only operating for half a day. They oh, yeah. might need the entire day for their yeah. child to be somewhere because they might have, you know, have to go to work or something like that and maybe one or two jobs. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're looking at as well. And it's very much a challenge because we have so many, education is the key for so much. It is it's very much the key, but we have to broaden that and make it much more accessible mm-hmm. for individuals. When we're looking at education, we're also looking at not just going to college or university. There are some students who are coming out of high school with a vocation that mm-hmm. takes them further than what I could imagine. Absolutely, <laughs> and, yeah. And I look and, I, and it, it broadens you. So it's providing those, those tools and access to these families to help them to get to that point. But at the same time, some, of these, some students, we need to see more diversity in our educational system, in our, in our educators. We need some students, it's like, yes, we say representation matters. Yes, representation does matter. And at the same time, some of our students, we need to see, you know, a student, you know, if a student's African-American, they need to see some African-American teachers. You know, um, children who are Asian-American, they need to see some Asian-American educators. If you, Black male teachers, male teachers, period. Yeah, in general. (laughs) We mainly see them in middle school and high school. Guess what? Some of them teach elementary school also. And so our young boys need to see that and our young girls need to see this. And so that's where the equity comes in because if some... Our students, if they don't see someone who looks like them or they see someone who cannot identify with them, then they start to feel, they go from being this, this, you know, very engaged student in kindergarten to by the time they're in third grade, they're very insular. They're quiet. And by the time they get to middle school, you would not know that that's the same child. And so that's what we're looking at. We have to make sure that this education piece is accessible for all students and that is equitable and that you know we have equality there but it has to be equitable it has to be I totally agree my oldest son is in college now um he wants to be a teacher but he wants to be a high school math teacher so um (laughs) he's got math minds that I don't have but you know, he loves to transform how people learn math, but yes. you're right, middle school, high school, you don't mm-hmm. see a lot of male teachers in the younger grades. And that, that mm-hmm. is really interesting. Well, I know that you're really passionate about racial justice and that it's yes. not just a societal mission, but also a personal one. So yes. I wonder if you would tell me about some of your experiences that drive your dedication to racial justice. Um, I know a lot of what drives my dedication to as one, you know, being an African-American woman is one. But as I was growing up, it was, I didn't really, I stayed in a very homogenous neighborhood. I did not see that there were too many differences. Even when I would go to my private school, it was very blended. I really didn't see a lot of issues. As I look back now Mm -hmm. and I hear conversations that were had as a, you know, as a child or in my teens, I'm like, well, that wasn't exactly the right thing you know, to say <laughs> or anything like that. But I was basically raised to um, to speak up for myself and for uh-huh. others. Uh-huh. And so when it comes to the racial justice piece, um, it, it hurts when I see, um, like, I remember I was in the hospital um, in, in the, um, what is it called, the elevator one time with my husband. Uh-huh. And there were some ladies that came on and they clutched their purse instantly when they saw him come on there. And I noticed it, but he didn't pay attention. And so what I did, 
consciously and sub- subconsciously, I started talking to him about what he does. I said, so when you were in the classroom today, so I just, because he's a school teacher, so I just started talking about school and talking about his degree. And then once I started doing that, they loosened up instantly and they start talking to him. He had no clue what was going on, but Bless it's him. a shame that that I felt the need to do that because I wasn't sure what was going to happen with him. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, and then the other thing, he likes to jog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. when I look at what happened with Christian Cooper um, this past um, May, mm-hmm. where he was sharing with that young woman in New York City uh-huh. that, um, well, you can't, you know, have your dog running loose here because this is a bird sanctuary and how she weaponized his his ethnicity uh-huh. on the phone to the police. And this is stuff that we we live with daily. Um, it, that, with the difference between now in this space in 2020 and 2019 mm-hmm. and maybe 10 years back is that we have cell phones and we have video cameras to be able to see these things. Yeah. And that's what makes a huge difference. And so that's what drives me because I shouldn't have to sit here and look at my son and nine years old and wonder, okay, when is he going to go from being cute to other people who think he's dangerous just because he's a black, a young black boy. I know. And so I, I think that's... about that for my son, but even before I had him, it's, it is, it's hurtful. Um, yeah. It's very hurtful. It's just tragic. I mean, I, I hate that you had to do that in the elevator. Yeah. I love that your husband was oblivious, like, and, and I think that could be a man thing, maybe. I don't want yes. to be like sexist here, but, is. you know, yeah. <laughs> my husband's oblivious to a lot of things too, but, yeah. um, but you know, like, I just, there's just some, so many things wrong with that. And it's like, just to justify that you're normal people and nobody should fear you. Like we shouldn't, nobody should have to do that. And I just hate that we're here. I, you know, I mean, I guess it's good that we're talking about it and that we're sort of at this, I'm hoping boiling point where people are saying it has to change. This has to be different. Yes. And I hope it will be, I hope that leads to real change, but, but I hate that. I hate that we're here. I just do, you know, I do too. And I think there are so many, the difference between now and like in the sixties is that we have so many more allies Yes. you know, who, who are here with us. We have so many organizations that are working with us. And that's where I um, go into my, you know, with PTA. PTA on the national level, as well as the state and local levels, our mission is to, you know, well, our basic mission is to make every child's potential a reality by engaging and empowering families and communities to advocate for all children, not just some, but for everybody. And this year we're celebrating our 50th anniversary of the unification of um, national PTA and the National Colored Parents and Teachers PTA. And Yay, so celebrating great. that now, and this is the 50th year, and then all of this is taking place. I'm like, holy cow. I said, so how did, so just looking at the alignment of everything coming up with that. But at the same time, we have not only, you know, um, we have not only PTA, but we also have, like I said, affirmations. We have New Detroit. We have um, what's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. For everyone's like, we have to try to figure this out. Yeah. We have to make sure that people feel included. It's it's sad when one's skin color is still used as a weapon. Yeah. Um, and it's whether you're black or you're right or if you're Asian or if you're um, Middle Eastern. Yeah. It shouldn't be used as a weapon, and in constant, and then at the same time, we shouldn't use, um, you know, 
try to brace everyone who is not black, indigenous, or person of color as being a demon because that's not true. Yeah. It's not true. We have to really look and figure out how we're going to get this get this right. Our kids are looking at us. <laughs> they are. And actually, it's funny because my kids, I don't know if your daughter is like this, but my kids are so furious and they will not, yes. they will not tolerate it, which I love. And my husband mm-hmm. keeps saying, stay mm-hmm. angry. You know, like mm-hmm. you be the generation that, that once mm-hmm. and for all changes this permanently. Yes. It's interesting. You know, my husband and I are binging on the Outlander series of um, TV shows. <laughs> yes. Um, some very good looking people on there to watch, but um, they're yes. in, a, I'm not going to do a spoiler, but they're in the West Indies in the late, late 1700s, really mid 1700s. And there's mm-hmm. the slave market. And um, so one of the characters who's, you know, from that time says to the, the character from the 20th century, when does this end? And yes. she said, in Britain, not for 70 years, and in the Americas, mm. not for 100 years. And I thought, maybe technically, mm. maybe the slave trade ended, but it's a lot longer mm. into the future than that. Yes. And it just was like a bittersweet, I mean, it's a TV show, it's a romance, it's, you know, whatever. But, but for me, it was a really bittersweet piece of dialogue mm. because... I'm like, yeah, maybe technically no more slaves are sold in a hundred years, but there's still a lot of horrible things that are going to be happening, you know, even to oh, now. There is. Yes, it is. Because when I think, when I look now and I'll just put a little caveat with that, when in the, um, I guess in the sixties and prior to that, we had um, poll taxes and literacy taxes, mm-hmm. um, which made in Jim Crow laws in which people were not able to vote. And it wasn't just African black people. It was, mm-hmm. you know, Native Americans also. Mm-hmm. My great grandmother was Native American and she, the first time she voted was 19, oh, I saw 1967. Oh. Oh. And so she was the happiest thing. I wasn't there at the time. I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> I remember my mom, my mom telling me how excited she was. And so when we look at that, when a lot of people say, well, we're not doing that anymore. I said, well, no, we still do have some suppression going on. And not yeah. just with voting rights, but we have suppression period. And the reason why I like bring that up is because we have students I, um, help, um, help to host two um, town hall meetings. Michigan PTA um, actually did our diversity, equity and inclusion committee hosted two town hall meetings that we had students who were participants on. The first one was the racial um, trauma on youth and families in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. And the second one was um, focusing on middle and high school curriculum, how to decolonize the um, middle and high school curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we had students who were participants on here and the adults who were on here, the the experts, they were the ones who were listening. They Mm -hmm. followed directions. They said, I want to hear what these kids have to say. And it wasn't just African. African-American students, we had Middle Eastern students, we had male, we had female, we had um, Italian, we had a, ch- a couple a couple kids who are in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take us looking at these kids and seeing how they interact for us as adults to be able to follow and take their lead and yeah. to carry out what they're not able to do because they don't have the, they're not a voting age yet. <laughs> Many of them are not. Well, they're on the cusp of it. And as we are approaching a presidential election, you yes. know, so many of us can do things to make sure that yes. people get get their vote counted, that they find out where their drop box is if they're voting, mm-hmm. um, you know, by absentee ballot. I mean, I know mm-hmm. that there are uh, powers that be in this country that are making it hard, yes. but we yes. can surmount. We really can. Um, we can. 
we can we can really rise above and make sure that everybody's vote really does count. So I hope that that will be that'll be the case. I do too. I do too. I really hope that that's the case. That the first thing people do, I'm like, go out and find out where you're supposed to vote. Make yes. sure you that you know where you're supposed to vote. That you are <laughs> registered because if you're not registered, it doesn't matter. So just find yeah. out one where you're supposed to vote. I mean, are you a registered voter and where you're supposed to vote and then take it from there? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You either put a mask on and do it or go get your absentee and make sure you know where the drop box is and make it happen, you know? Exactly. So. Make it happen. I love <laughs> <that>. <laughs> so, you know, as we sort of wind down on this amazing interview, and I'm so glad to be able to speak with you, Jennifer, but um, yes. on this show, we, we focus on how people make meaning and find purpose in work and in life. Mm. And you've said that your life has meaning because of what you do and how you were raised. Yeah. So can you tell mm-hmm. me more about you know, about that, about how you find meaning and, and how you came to this calling too? Um, that is a great question because I ask myself that. Sometimes I look around and I'm like, okay, Jen, everything you do is with diversity, equity, inclusion. I mean, everything, every organization that I'm affiliated with has, I'm involved in their diversity, equity, inclusion piece. <laughs> everything with the students, with my own children, is, has to do with, you know, social justice. Uh-huh. And I think it comes down to, I think that we all should have equal rights. We should all have, you know, at equality. My mom, I remember her taking me, she worked on different politicians, their campaigns. Mm-hmm. I could barely walk, I think. I was in strollers and what have you. And <laughs> she would have me out there on the campaign trail doing all of, all of this stuff. My mom was at the, um, the march, not the march on Washington, but the march that was in Detroit in which Martin Luther King was there. So I Ooh. think it was kind of like ingrained with me <laughs> to, to be wired like this. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as with um, LGBTQ community, I, um, I'm an ally. My um, two older brothers were, um, they identified as LGBTQ. They were in the community. And when I look at them, it was like, it, like I said, it was ingrained. It was like, okay, we just, we didn't care. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, this is how they are. This is how we are. We have no problem with that. And so yeah. I think what this is, when you find meaning in your purpose and find out what it is that gets you excited. Like, what is your coffee without having the coffee? <laughs> <laughs> what, what wakes you up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. What is it that gets you up and gets you going? And then when you look at it, see how you can use it for good. Mm-hmm. Always see how you can use it for good. Because the thing is, it's like, there are plenty of things out there that can, you know, not be a good fit, but we're always growing. We always try to grow. And when I think about, and I'll share with this, is when I think about when they're talking about the cancel culture that's taking place, the cancel culture doesn't allow for people to grow from that. Um, There might be somebody who said something that was just outlandish or did something that was just (laughs) completely ridiculous. Uh But if they try to learn to grow from that, they're like, okay, I realized what I did was wrong and I need to work on it. Listen to that person, help Uh them to get where they need to be, where they might be able to find their purpose. Their purpose might be, okay, I need to try to show others. This is not how you need to do things. I need to do that. But at the same time, you don't want to get taken by everybody either. Basically, like I said, find out what it is that's out there that is your coffee. Mm -hmm. Find out what it is that gets you excited and contributes to society, as well as that your, your tribe, your circle. Your tribe doesn't have to look like you. They don't have to think like you. Well, you know, it's funny. I usually end my episodes asking my guests, you know, what permission slip would you give to our listeners to go in search of their meaning and purpose? But I think you just did that. <laughs> so I think we have a lot of permission slips there, which are awesome. So go and find your coffee, right? What yes. wakes you up? So what gets yes. you going? 
I really love that. So Jennifer Johnson, thank you so much for all you do for children and families in Michigan and to, um, you know, bring justice to the world. And, and I applaud your efforts. I will continue stalking you because I'm so <laughs> impressed and I admire everything you're doing and hope that we'll get to cross paths face to face one day soon. Thank you for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. Thank you.